Merritt Street, we're building a new morning show where our guiding principle is to always value your time. We'd love for you to join us. Be part of our community. Each morning will be packed full of news, information, advice, and a lot of fun. And we promise we'll never waste your time. I'm Dominique Soxa. I'm Fanchon Stinger. Join us for Morning on Merritt Street. 8 a.m. Eastern, 7 Central. Essential Television. And I had L.A. County Sheriff Alex Villanueva on. What a terrific guy he is. And you know, I was talking to him about the fact that I'm doing what the CDC recommends. She gave us the straight scoop about what it's going to take to get something that knocks this out. I've watched the mental emotional commitment to this, and Americans have done a damn good job. And that's why this thing has turned around. Hey, it's Dr. Phil, and it's Tuesday, fill in the blanks. So this is our 39th day of lockdown, and I'm just curious how everyone is doing. This is uh, really getting tough for some people. I am getting so much mail and so many people that I'm hearing them say that their mood their emotion, their belief that they can stick with this has really changed and evolved across time. I'm hearing from people that are saying, listen, I thought I could do this two weeks ago, even a week ago, and now I'm really starting to wonder if I'm going to be okay. I talked to a good friend of mine today whose daughter is in New York And I know her, and she's in her 20s and tough. I mean, really tough. And he said last week she was just crying. She's been in her apartment, hasn't been outside, taking a walk or in the sun. And she was saying, you know, Dad, I just don't know. I don't know if I can take this. The stress is getting to me. I'm lonesome. Nothing interests me. I'm just feeling like, what's the point? And you just really think, how could that be with just being 30 days into this, which was last week, and now it's 39 days, and he actually says she kind of maybe hit bottom and is doing a little better now, but I'm wondering how you're doing. I'm wondering if this is really, really starting to take its toll on you. You know, we're seeing an awful lot of people out there saying enough's enough and too much is too much and this is too much, so... We're seeing protesters out there saying we're not taking this anymore, et cetera, et cetera. I just really plead with everybody to recognize that there's a right way and a wrong way to turn this back on. And is it having an adverse effect on our world? Of course it is. I was just hearing from some of my financial people that oil for the first time in history, 
is minus $37.63 a barrel for May futures for U.S. crude. Now, you're probably thinking, how in the world can oil be minus $37 a barrel? Well, what they're saying is for May contracts, people are saying, I'm not going to pay anything for May oil, oil that I would have to take delivery on in May, because I have so much oil in my tanks, I would have nowhere to put it. If you delivered it to me in May, I would have nowhere to put it. So people were dumping, nobody buying, and so it started tumbling. It went down 305%. It dumped $55.90 a barrel. So it's now minus $37.63 a barrel. First time in history that it's gone. It was down over $40 a barrel earlier. It finished at $37.63 on the negative side. That's how bad it's gotten. A week ago, I said a quarter of Michigan's workers were unemployed. I read over the weekend that half of California's workforce is unemployed, and so therefore filing for unemployment, which is why I'm saying there are adverse effects to staying in quarantine. There are adverse effects coming out of quarantine, and both have to be weighed. That's why I say there's a tipping point, and if we're going to come out of quarantine, we need to follow the science and do it in the right way, or we can wind up right back where we are, and all of the sacrifices that have been made so far are going to be for naught. Now, you know, I've spent 23 years in the public eye. And I've been misquoted and misinterpreted and all a lot, but, you know, I just kind of take it in stride and decide, you know, that's just part of it. And I never whine about it as much as I sometimes want to. Instead of complaining about being misquoted, misinterpreted, misspun, I talk about just what my position is. And I've looked back, and we've done 25 shows on coronavirus. And so I've looked and thought, you know, maybe it's time to take a look at some of the wisdom that I think, and I'm being immodest here, but some of the wisdom I think that we have delivered through these 25 shows. I go all the way back to March 19th. We did a show on coronavirus parenting under quarantine, and we had Donna Tetro on. She's a parenting expert, and it was a really important show about how to deal with parenting when you have to be a mother, a father, and then all of a sudden, without four years of training as a teacher, start to become a homeschooler. and. I remember starting that show by saying, I need to be here alone today as I take the guidelines of the CDC, Dr. Fauci, the preeminent expert, very seriously, and I'm respecting every one of them that's been given, and I encourage you to do exactly the same thing. I said, I'm not an immunologist. I'm not an infectious disease expert. 
but I do have access to these people that probably most of you don't have access to. And I've been very careful to take all the politics out of this and gather what they've told me so I can pass it on. And that's what I've been doing across the last 25 shows. So I say I'm not an immunologist. I'm not an infectious disease expert. I'm not a molecular microbiologist. So, you know, who the hell am I? I mean, why am I talking about this at all? Well, I don't talk about this very much. I read an article in Parade Magazine one time a few years back. A husband and wife were arguing, is he a real doctor or does he just play one on TV? And they had this big debate going, and they resolved the debate by, I just play one on TV. Seriously, that's how they resolved it. But the truth is, that's not true. The truth is, I do have a PhD in psychology from... North Texas State University, the Mean Green. You remember Joe Green? The Mean Green. It was an APA-approved program, and um, I had two areas of specialization in my training in my PhD program. One was clinical psychology, where we focus on like neuroses and psychoses and personality disorders, that kind of thing but also behavioral medicine, just like medical psychology. It's the point at which your psychology and your physiology come together and influence each other, which is why I'm talking to you so much about how stress affects your mood and how mood affects your body, because I've studied that. That's so important that we recognize anxiety, depression can affect the way our body functions. And I had a master's degree in research psychology, figuring out what research means, how to interpret those studies. I then did an internship at the VA Medical Center in Waco, and then a postdoctoral fellowship in forensic psychology at the Wilmington Institute. Then I was in private practice for a while, and then I founded a trial science company, as you all know. So I'm not a molecular biologist. I'm not an infectious disease expert, but I didn't just fall off a turnip truck either. I am trained in clinical psychology, medical psychology, and how these two interact to influence how our bodies behave when we're under stress and pressure. And I said in that first show, I'm concerned about the mental health aspect of what's going on here because I know they do interact. In our second show, I went straight to the heart of it, coronavirus fears. My anxiety is crippling. And I said, like many of you at home, I've made the decision to self-quarantine and practice social distancing. But if I have any influence over you, then let me tell you, this is not an overreaction. This is something we need to do to stem the tide. And I pointed out again, I'm not an immunologist. I'm not an infectious disease expert. So I just want to share with you what these experts have taken time to tell me. We talked to coronavirus naysayers who said, I don't care what anybody says. I'm going to go out and party anyway. We talked about coronavirus, how to stay safe. And I had L.A. County Sheriff Alex Villanueva on. What a terrific guy he is. 
And you know, I was talking to him about the fact that I'm doing what the CDC recommends. I'm keeping my distance for the health of our country. So that means I'm at home. I'm in self-quarantine. I was making that point because this looks like a guy you don't want to mess with. I mean, I don't think you could get both arms around him. He'd be like hugging a 55-gallon drum. This guy is really stout. Very serious law enforcement guy, but super nice guy, really. And in fact, he was very nice. He was talking about, we're not being heavy-handed with people here. We're just encouraging them to do the right thing. He said, we're not arresting people. And uh, he was very kind. He said, Dr. Phil, thank you for the message you're doing. It's like a public service announcement. I want to stay on his good side. And we blew up some of the myths, and he talked about some of the cons that were going on. Then we did a show about coronavirus, couples in crisis, about how to keep from getting on each other's last nerve so this thing doesn't blow up. And as I look at these summaries, I I keep saying, I'm not an infectious disease specialist. I'm not an immunologist. I guess I keep saying that because I don't want anybody to think that I think I know what's going on on the medical side. I don't. I'm just reporting back what I'm learning because we've had some of the great experts in the country on. And Robin and I are just doing what the CDC says. And we're still doing what the CDC said. We had Dr. Amen on who really talks about how your brain responds to stress. He's head of the Amen Clinic and he was great. We talked to people on the front lines. We talked to whistleblowers. We talked to people that were on the front lines and what they were really having to deal with. Again, we blew up some of the myths. We've covered a lot here. We talked to Dr. Norman Freed, who's a disaster mental health specialist, and he really talked to us about some of the things you need to realize about your brain and how that works. So, and I say again, I said it in that show, and I say it again today listen to the scientists, pick your sources very carefully. The CDC, the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases, Dr. Fauci, some of these people that take the politics out of it and just tell you straight up. And listen, I know I've had a lot of messages about Dr. Fauci says one thing one week and something else the next week. And you know why that is? It's because it's a moving target. Things change and he tells you when they change. But I certainly trust what he says and If he keeps telling you the same thing when things are changing, then you shouldn't trust him. But I do trust him. We talked to Dr. Daniela Lamas. She's pulmonary and critical care specialist. And she really gave us some insights into how this works in the lungs and why it's important for you to stay away from people that have this disorder. We talked to Dr. Dina Grayson. And wow. She is so impressive and has worked so much in coming up with antiviral agents and gave us the straight scoop about what it's going to take to get something that knocks this out. I was so impressed with her. That was great. We talked about sobriety in this time of crisis. You know, I'm so worried about addicts and alcoholics who depend on their meetings in their 12-step system, and they can't do it when they're in isolation. They don't have that human contact. 
and you know that's so hard and i hope they use the technology and we talk to people that have been branded and scorned you know sometimes when people get this people really judge them they really turn on them and start judging them and ostracizing them and accusing them of doing something wrong well if you get this virus it doesn't mean you've done something wrong this is a highly contagious virus so you shouldn't be judged for it just because you got infected. It is a highly infectious sort of thing. We talked about miracle cures and what really might treat COVID-19. And we had Dr. Susanna Nagy on. She's associate dean with regard to infectious diseases. And she's such an impressive woman. She's got an MD from John Hopkins School of Medicine. And she did an internal medicine training at Duke University. And she's director of infectious disease research at Duke, medical director of clinical research at Duke. And we got some really straight scoop out of her. It was just great. And all of that's available online if you want to take a look at it. And it's very clear that progress is being made here. I mean, progress is clearly, clearly being made. And... You know, I think one of the most impressive people that we've talked to is coming up this week, and it hasn't aired yet, but it's coming up this week, and you're going to be hearing from an expert by the name of Glanville, and he is working on antibodies and is going to tell you some things that are going to lift your spirit like you will not believe. I'm not going to give it all away, but you're going to hear him say some things that are going to make you smile, going to make you think, you know what? That light at the end of the tunnel is not an oncoming train. You're going to hear some things from him that are going to be very, very exciting. And this guy is serious. He's the doc that was featured in the Netflix special pandemic had to do with the SARS outbreak in 2003, and he is very active right now. And it's it's Dr. Jacob Glanville, and he's going to say some things that are going to make you very hopeful about what's coming up. And it's something that could impact what goes on this summer and what can happen before a second wave can come in here and just really ravage us like it did when the pandemic of 1918 happened and so many hundreds of thousands of lives were taken, most of them taken in the second wave. So you're going to hear some things from him that I think you're going to be very heartened by. So I really hope you'll watch that show coming up this week. Now, the big thing I want to talk about is the longer this goes on, the worse the stress is. And if, I think I've said to you before, if somebody told me that I could only control one thing and I wanted to make someone insane, what would I want to control? It would be sleep it would be their sleep. And stress involves sleep patterns, 
in a major way. There are three stages involved in stress. There's the alarm phase. That's where we're more energized. That's that fight-or-flight reaction where we get adrenaline and cortisol. And then there's the resistance phase. That's where stress gets chronic. We aren't as energized and wired, but we're still more alert. I mean, we're just kind of bug-eyed looking around. And then there's the exhaustion phase. It's the depletion of our bodily systems. It's a natural consequence of ongoing elevated cortisol. And cortisol stops us from getting deep sleep, and it compromises the body's ability to create the happiness hormone serotonin. So it isn't important that you go look these things up. It's just that there are two chemicals in the body that work against each other when you're under stress. One of them keeps you from getting sleep, and sleep keeps you from creating a chemical in your brain that you need to feel happy, to feel pleasure. So it's really important that if you're not getting good sleep, let me encourage you, do something to change that. And I've got some tips for that. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. And these are behavioral tips. This isn't medical, this is behavioral. These are things you can do without taking a sleeping pill, without taking some chemicals. And number one is you need to create that soft place to fall. You need to create that sanctuary, that place that there are just nothing to keep you awake. And one of the things you've got to get rid of are what we call blue light. Blue light emits from computers from iPhones. It can even come from your alarm clock. Blue light is on the spectrum and it does something to the brain that keeps it alert. Now, I got something that's a shield that I put on my iPad where I can still see the screen clearly, but it blocks blue light. So if I get in bed and I'm watching something on my iPad or whatever, it takes out the blue light so it doesn't trigger my brain in that way. 
And it was like five bucks or 10 bucks or something. And I got it to fit the screen. I ordered it. I don't know if I got it from Apple or Amazon or somewhere, but it's just a simple clear. It looks clear, but it's not. It blocks out certain rays and I put it on my screen so I didn't have blue light in there. And it's good to take an evening shower or bath like 45 minutes to an hour before you go to bed. Don't work out before you go to bed. A lot of people want to do sit-ups and push-ups and go get in the gym, get on a treadmill or go run around a block or something before you go to bed. It's not good. It wakes your body up too much. It's hard to then shut down. You want to phase yourself into sleep. Start winding down. You've seen that with your kids. You don't want your kids running wild and playing tag right up until the second they're supposed to go to bed. Then they're all wired. You want them to you know, play for a while, then read a book, then take a bath, then lay in bed and hear a story. You're phasing them down. Do the same thing with yourself. If you're going to drink something, drink something like chamomile tea. Take a magnesium supplement if it's something that your doctor's okay with. It helps the muscles to relax. And I find it really helpful to practice gratitude. I think it's great to keep a pad beside your bed because if you wake up at night and your mind's racing about things, oh my God, I got to do this tomorrow, I got to do that tomorrow. I find if you write things down on the pad, then you don't feel like you need to keep thinking about them during the night. You wrote them down so you'll know they'll be there tomorrow. You won't forget. So your mind doesn't race trying to keep them there. And then you can really practice the deep breathing that I've talked about. Three seconds in, six seconds out. Three seconds inhale, six seconds exhale. That gives you a good oxygen-carbon dioxide ratio, and it will really help your brain start to gear down. So that can help you get sleep. And if you can wake up rested, your ability to tolerate the stress, to tolerate the demands, to tolerate the confinement that you're going through will be a whole lot better off. Because I don't care what anybody's telling you. I don't care what you want or how bad you want it. There's no way they're just going to throw the gates open and we're going to go racing back out there and be right back to our lives like we were uh, in a matter of weeks. Um, it's up to your governor, it's up to your mayor, but they're going to set a date and then they're going to start phasing. And I don't know if you've read what the federal government has come up with, but they've come up with the three-phase program. And I took about three and a half hours to really figure out what all of that meant. And so I want to translate that in case you got as lost in it as I did. I, I, I took about three hours. Um, and before you even get to the first phase, then they go through what's called gating. And that means there has to be a downward trend for 14 days. And we're talking about a downward trend of symptoms a downward trend of COVID symptoms, a downward trend of any kind of 
other disease symptoms, any kind of flu or temperatures, anything like that, a downward trend in the percentage of positive tests. Everything has to be trending down consistently for 14 days before you can even get to phase one. And so if you're in a place that's still having two days down, one day up, two days down, three days up, you're not even going to get to phase one. And most of the governors and most of the mayors are following this. And the hospital has to be in a situation where they can treat patients without crisis care. And they have to be able to test all at-risk frontline people for the virus and for antibodies. And we're way behind on testing. So they got to be able to say, okay, we can, all of our frontline people are at risk. We have to be able to test them to see that they don't have the virus and if they have antibodies. Then the state has responsibilities where they have to have test sites where they can pop up a site if they start to get a hot spot. And they have to be able to track if people start showing up positive for the disease. They have to have what they call sentinel sites. If there are asymptomatic people that are showing up around older citizens or in low socioeconomic areas or areas where minority, they have to have a good healthcare system. They have to have plenty of PPE, ICU, and equipment enough to handle a surge. So if we go back out and there's a surge, your healthcare system has to show that they're going to have enough to handle that. And they have to demonstrate that they have plans to protect those that are critical, that they have to be able to handle those in high-risk facilities and mass transit. So they've got to be able to show that they have enough masks, that they can maintain social distancing, and that they can monitor and mitigate if a hotspot shows up. So basically what they're saying is you got to show that you've got your act together if there's a surge. I read you a lot of points here that I pulled out of this, but what it's basically saying is you got to show a downward trend for 14 days. You got to show the ability to protect your frontline people. And you've got to be able to demonstrate that if there's a surge, that if it goes south on you, you can handle it without overwhelming the system. And if you can show that, then you get to phase one. And if you can't show all of that, then you don't even get to phase one. And if you get to phase one, then here's the deal. With regard to individuals, the vulnerable people, that is the older people, the people with underlying conditions continue to shelter in place. And if you are a family member of one of those folks, then you have to isolate yourself when you come home. If you go back out into the world and you're coming home to someone that is elderly or has an underlying condition, you have to isolate yourself from them in some way. In public, still a limit of 10. No groups 10 or larger. And you have to avoid those groups, and you you can't be around them without taking precautions. Socially, no groups, 10 or more, without social distancing. And you have to minimize non-essential travel. Employers have to encourage telework and return their workforce in phases. No common areas. 
So like a cafeteria or lunchroom, no, can't do it. Have to have social distancing, minimize non-essential travel, and have zones. So if you have people that work there that are at high risk, you have a place for them to work away from the group that could possibly infect them. And then by category, schools and bars that are closed stay closed in phase one. Nursing homes, for example, that are locked down, no outside visitors, they stay locked down. And then venues, gyms, and say movies or malls or whatever, they can open, but they have to maintain social distancing or they'll shut them back down. Elective surgeries, they're going to say, okay, in phase one, you can start doing those again, provided the hospital is not handling a surge. Phase two, instead of groups of 10, it goes up to 50. Travel is okay. Schools and bars can reopen in addition to everything in phase one. So you can see that there's a stepwise way to get back to this. So why am I taking time to tell you all this? Because I understand psychologically you have to have some hope. You have to have some sense that we can get this done that there's some hope that we're going to be able to get this done, that we're just not so inept, that we're just continuing to sit here and rock along with no hope of making progress, no hope of moving this forward. And it's not just the government saying this. There's a public health advocacy group called Resolve to Save Lives. It's run by Dr. Thomas Frieden. Uh, he's a former director of the CDC, and he's published very specific criteria for what they believe, after a lot of study, has to happen before the country, the economy, can reopen and when it must be closed. And they're saying some of the same things, that before you can reopen our country, that you have to have declining cases for 14 days in a row, and you have to have tracing of 90% of the contacts for someone that is infected to have an end to health worker infections as well. If you have health workers that are infected, you, you can't open the country. You've got to have an end to that, and you've got to have recuperation places for mild cases. And other goals that are going to be tough to reach, but those are kind of some of the big pieces. And they say that you need to reopen this like a faucet that you're opening gradually, first a trickle, then a flow, not just allow floodgates to just flood the city all at one time. And that if we'll work together, that day is going to come sooner rather than later. They talk about something that I think is really interesting. They say that pretty soon, America's going to start getting divided into two classes, kind of like Dr. Seuss when he wrote about the star-bellied sneetches, where you had these, these characters he came up with called sneetches. And there was those that had stars on their bellies and those that didn't have stars on their bellies. And what they're saying is that's what's getting ready to happen here, because presumably we're going to have this whole group of Americans when testing starts in earnest, and we have a lot of people tested, we're going to find out that there are a lot of people that have had this that don't even know it, and so now they have antibodies and are assumed to be immune. 
So you're going to have one group of people that have immunity, and then you're going to have a group of people that are still vulnerable. And this is going to be a real scary situation because those with antibodies are going to be able to travel and work, and everybody else is going to feel like they're being discriminated against. They can't go. They have to stay home. They can't earn money. They can't go anywhere. Already, we've got people that have antibodies, and so they assume that they're safe. They can't get it or they can't give it. And so they're able to be on the front lines and do high-risk jobs without any fear. So pretty soon, they're going to come up with some kind of immunity passport. They're going to come out with maybe an app on your phone or some kind of ID card or something where you can come to a checkpoint or come to a gate or a door at a hospital or a uh, office building, and you can present it and say, listen, I, I'm a low-risk individual. I have antibodies. I'm immune, so I can't get it. So that means I can't be a carrier. I can't get infected, and I can't infect others. So they're going to have a huge leg up. They may get your job. You may have had a job at an accounting firm, and they need somebody to do that job, but you you haven't been infected so you're not eligible to get that job. They may give your job to somebody that has had the disease. So you may be sitting there in your house and looking across the street at your neighbor who was your friend, and you're stuck in lockdown and you're seeing them come and go. And that's going to breed a lot of resentment. Again, that's a psychological issue. Now, one of the people involved in this was talking about he has a daughter that is a Harvard economist, Dr. Michelle Berry, saying that she has a daughter that keeps saying that there's a group that that her age group needs to have COVID-19 parties so they can develop immunity and keep the economy going. And that sounds crazy, but think about it. A lot of young people have mild or moderate symptoms. And I've heard them talking about this where they're saying, hey, why don't I just go ahead and get this so I get immunity and then I can just go on about my business and be done with this? Well, I've talked to some people in these 25 shows I've done that would say, yeah, that's not quite as easy as you think it is. I've had a couple of 20-year-olds that said they were so sick they thought they were going to die. It was horrible. But there are a lot of people that are actually thinking that way, saying, look, I can just put all this behind me. I can just get this damn virus and go through maybe a week of flu-like symptoms or maybe not even that bad, and then I'm good to go. I I can start flying, traveling, go back to work, have money in my pocket, be moving around town with no traffic. I I can be out there. I'm just going to go catch this and get it over with. I do not recommend that. But that's what a lot of people are talking about. That happened in Cuba one time. They talk about that in this article I'm referencing where they had an outbreak of AIDS down there and they forced all of those people that tested positive into a a very controlled community. And there were a lot of people trying to contract it because they wanted to be in that crowd. Uh, They all had everything they wanted in there. They had their own theater group. They had their own 
bungalows. They had this own little community, and it was kind of seen as the in crowd. There were a lot of people trying to contract aid so they could get in there. It sounds crazy, but that is exactly what happened. So if you've got young people in your family, ask them if they've been thinking about that, if they've been talking about that, and ask them if it really makes sense. I will tell you this. You've heard me say, I'm no immunologist. I'm no infectious disease expert. And I am no economist. But I can read and I can study and I have been reading history. And the only other two times that there's been any kind of economic shutdown like this was during World War I and World War II, when the economy became subordinate to the war effort. And I can tell you this, that when it was over, there was such a pent-up appetite, such a pent-up appetite, that the economy really recovered. And it recovered quickly and robustly. I wonder if that's what's going to happen now. Oil, minus $37.60 a barrel for May futures. That can't last, obviously. But I wonder is when the economy gets turned back on, if there's going to be such a pent-up appetite for everything that when people get jobs again, when they get cash flow again, if it's just going to turn things back on in such a way that we have a really big rebound. Now, I'm the incurable optimist. In the 25 shows I've done, I've said, follow the science. Listen to the science. There will come a tipping point where there's more risk to stay in quarantine than there is to come out of quarantine. I don't know when that will be, but I know whenever that is, because we'll never get to zero, we'll never get to zero cases, whenever that is, science will tell us that. Science will say this is, is now a calculated risk that there will be a right way and a wrong way to get back out there. It will be with phases and conditions. That's what science is telling us. And right now, this is not a medical equation. This is a behavioral equation. Is the virus a medical condition? Yes, it is. But it's our behavior that has controlled it. It's your behavior, your spirit, your strength that has controlled this. You're not helpless. And you have shown great strength. You have shown great will to turn this around. And God bless you for doing it. Being in isolation is a very altruistic thing because most of the people in isolation are not in a high-risk group. And so you've done it to help others more than yourselves. And God bless you for doing that. You've done it to help others. It's a very altruistic thing. Of course you've done it to help yourself, but you've made tremendous sacrifices for those that would probably have a worse time of it than you. Let's not go through all of this and then go back out there in such a hurried fashion that we have such a spike, such a surge, that we wind up right back to day one, right back where we were. 
where it's spreading like wildfire and we have to go back into quarantine again and start it all over. We've done such a good job as a country. All of those projections that were made with the models of 250,000 people dead, those weren't off because people were incompetent. They were off because they underestimated the ability and willingness of the American people to make a sacrifice. And they'll say, oh, no, we, we took into account quarantine and, and social distancing and all that. Yeah, but they didn't, they didn't take into account how far Americans were willing to go. And critics will say, yeah, there's still people out there having backyard parties in secret. There's still people meeting up and dating in secret and all. There's always a critic. There's always somebody to find fault with what's going on. But I'm telling you, in the main, Americans have done a damn good job here. They've done a damn good job here. And like I said, I'm, I'm not an immunologist. I'm not an infectious disease expert. But I am a behavioral expert, and I've watched the behavior. I've watched the spirit. I've watched the mental-emotional commitment to this, and Americans have done a damn good job, and that's why this thing has turned around. They certainly haven't given us a vaccine. They certainly haven't given us billions of doses of antibodies. We've controlled this. We've controlled this by being in isolation, playing by the rules. So let's stick with it just a little bit longer. Let's stick with this. And if we need to follow a certain phased program to get back out there, let's do it. I mean, it's going to happen very soon, so let's do it. I mean, New York today, I think they had less than 500 deaths for the first time since April 2nd. I mean, it's declining. That means even even Governor Cuomo said, I, I think we've reached our apex and we've started down the other side. That's the hot spot of the world. They're saying we've started down the other side. This has turned around, it appears. Now, could it surge again tomorrow or something? Yes, it could, but it appears that we're trending in the right direction. Let's hang in there just a little bit longer and let this turn around. I know you can do it. I know I can do it. It's been easy for me because I'm a homebody. Okay, I'm going to quit giving you a rah-rah speech, but I'm going to tell you from where I sit, from a psychological, mental, emotional, behavioral perspective, I've seen what everyone has done and what everyone is doing. And listen, there are people out there protesting in the streets to open everything up now. This is America. People have the right to express their views. Maybe they're right. It's not one size fits all. Different states, different counties, different communities have different levels of need. Maybe they're right. I don't know. It's not my position to judge them. But this is America. Everybody has a right to express themselves. But you do what's right for you. Look around you. Do what's right for you. Look at the number of cases. Look at the death count. Do what's right for you. Model effectively for your children. And if that means expressing your views, it means getting a sign and going out and protesting or whatever, do what you feel like you have to do, but do it responsibly. We'll talk again. And uh, listen, tune into the shows. We're doing some really good shows. I'm the shameless plug here, but we're doing some good, responsible shows with top drawer experts 
you know, I look at the experts we've had on. We've got, you know, four with ties to Harvard, Duke, UCLA, USC, Johns Hopkins. We're having the best experts in the world on to tell us the truth. No politics, just science. You're going to hear the truth. You can find everything they've had to say on our website and on Dr. Phil's YouTube channel. You can find everything Dr. Nagy has had to say, Dr. Glanville has had to say, uh, Dr. Freed has had to say, Dr. Amon has had to say. All of these people have had to say. Because I'm not pretending I know what the deal is. I'm just bringing you the people that I know for damn sure know what to say. Okay. Have a good week. Have no idea what things are going to look like this time next week. But I'll tell you what, I'll be here. I hope you are too. Tell your friends to listen in. Tell them to listen to this because I think we're talking common sense here. Common sense. So long.